Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to season two of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, a casual and we hope revealing conversation with Jim and I and our guest of the week that hopes to go behind the scenes and really tell the story of what's going on. Today, Chris and I talked to Amir Sagi, who is the Cyber Affairs Coordinator in Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Amir is an experienced diplomat and will talk to us about what's happening in the OEWG, national cyber strategies, capacity building, and the creation of accountability in cyberspace. So a good conversation. Welcome, Amir. So I'll just start with the first question, which I should know. Were you in New York at the OEWG or did you skip it? No, I was there. Yeah, he was there. Did you have a good time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was extremely hot, inside and outside. <laughs> <laughs> How useful did you find it? Well, useful, listen, it's always useful. It's always useful to, to touch base with, I mean, I can call it already a community. It's like all the, the cyber diplomacy uh, community. It's, uh -huh. it's always great. I get to see them quite often and it's always good to see all of them. And it feels like a family already. So it's really nice. Now, useful from, it depends again on, on what's the end goal for us. This process wasn't our choice. We didn't want, we were very happy with the GGEs. We participated in, in, in a few of them, not all of them, but the GGE framework was working quite well for Israel. And we were happy with it. Although we, in some GGEs, we didn't participate and it of course wasn't as useful as, as the others, but when we open it up to all the world and then we see uh, most of the members of the UN at, at the table, it, it, it has a benefit that you can actually listen to perspectives and, and get the, the feeling of what's going on all across the globe. But the end goal for us wouldn't be what the end goal is for many, many other countries. We don't see the open-ended as a, as a place where we should further elaborate or have new norms or talk about uh, binding uh, mechanisms, legally binding. That's not what, what we look for. We think that it, it should be a place where we can look for opportunities to, to do uh, what we believe are the two main pillars of, of the work that should be done, which is confidence building and mostly capacity building. What's your sense? I mean, I, it's interesting you say that the it's a community because I think that that's right. I think that's an interesting way to look at it that really over the last 10 years when there wasn't a community 10 years ago, I remember when you know I started, there weren't a lot of folks in other governments that did this, that you know, one of the advantages of, of the bringing everyone to New York is there really is a community. I mean, not all like-minded, but there's a community. And so that's that's good. And there's a lot of folks from developing countries. So that's a very interesting perspective. As you know, the kind of chair had a draft that was somewhat forward-leaning, I guess, in some ways that, that caused some controversy. But where do you think the the report ended up? Did it end up from your perspective in a, in a good place? Because there was a lot, you know, I think there was a lot of compromise against consensus. There wasn't, it wasn't clear consensus was going to happen until probably the last day, especially with some of the issues we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, what was your sense of the final draft? I'll tell you, we we, we were expecting, listen, the, the, if it would be a reflection or a copy 
of uh, the report of the 2021 uh, open-ended, then we haven't done anything. I mean, so it had to be updated. It had to have new things that emerged because things have changed in the realm since then. So we were expecting, for instance, like many others, to see a clear uh, reference to ransomware, in the, mm -hmm. at least in the threat part. And we, could, we were talking about it and others were talking about it. It didn't happen. Yeah, I don't really understand why, but it didn't happen. Yeah, I don't understand why people were, or countries were reluctant to mention ransomware. If it was, it wasn't ransomware by some X country. It was ransomware as a, as a yeah. phenomena, and now we've seen what happened lately with Costa Rica, which crossed the, the border of, of ransomware just being attacking you know organizations and companies. Now they're attacking states, and they're basically going for governments, which is a terrible development for many, many developing countries that don't have the capacities to protect themselves and would find themselves one day in, in a situation where their, their data, their, their infrastructure are in danger. This should have been reflected in, in the report and it would it couldn't be reflected which is is something we, we didn't understand why. Yeah, it's weird. I, my sense was, there was some reluctance to, you know, to use the Ghostbusters theme, cross the streams that uh, people thought that if you start talking about ransomware, then you're talking about cybercrime and then you were getting into the you know stuff that's going on in the third committee. But, but I think that there were people that were giving really good language. Yeah, yeah. In the right context, because I understand we are we're also participating in the other channel in two weeks, less than two weeks. I'm going to be in New York again. Yep. See the you there. Channel, which is focusing, <laughs> on, focusing on, on cybercrime. I understand that. That's good. I mean, this we are not the ones advocating for the open-ended to be dealing with cybercrime. That's not the right. issue. Here, we believe that ransomware, especially in the last few months, have crossed the threshold sure. of becoming a national security threat. Yeah. We've seen it even in Albania now, or we've seen it in Costa Rica. It might happen to other countries around the world, and this is really worrying. So yeah. that's one thing that we, we, we were disappointed to see that it didn't go that way. And that's then interesting. there was the, oh, it's oh, interesting oh. because the US decided months ago that ransomware was a national security threat. Yeah. So that is our official position. Right. We were there. I mean, we, we we've heard Michelle, she was talking about it. We heard many Europeans were talking about it. Even Latin American countries were raising this issue because of what happened in Costa Rica. And it couldn't go through, which was Disappointing. Another thing that we saw again, all the focus on, which we we we're not necessarily happy to see on new norms and legally uh, binding norms and all that. That discussion is always coming up because we we know the. Our uh, motto on this show is: you can never have too many norms. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's like that in Saturday Night Live. It has to be ambiguous that you can, you know, like you can you can never add enough water to a nuclear reactor. Which, like, no. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, yeah, another norm, just what we need. Right. We we have we've always been we've always been very pragmatic. Meaning, there are norms. We were there when the norms were articulated. We were in the room. We had a fight with Michelle and the others at the time of the norms. <laughs> but again, we we joined the consensus on these 11 norms. Yeah. Fine. We accepted them, and we would like to see more. And that happened seven years ago. We would like to see more discussion and more action on implementation. Let's try to do implementation before we run to have new norms or 
try to elaborate the existing norms or even discuss the undiscussable uh, legally binding norms. That's our perspective. We come from that point that this should be um, definitely focused on implementation. We've seen uneven implementation at the least to say. Yeah. Very, very problematic implementation. Let's, let's focus on that for before, before we run to uncharted waters. Where do you think the problems are in implementation? I mean, you see partial implement. I never was comfortable with the word implementation, but if you think it's a problem, why? Where is it? Because there's, there's probably, first of all, there's an issue of capacity. That's mm -hmm. we always sure. talk about. The, so strengthening the weakest links is always the most important thing to do for the global security. I mean, as right. long as there will be all these loopholes, although all these countries, they don't have the capacity to do the basic, basic defense and all these places where there's not enough enforcement and so on, then we would have issues. So first of all, we have to make sure that most countries would have at least the capacity to do the basic implementation. Mm -hmm. And then it comes to, we've seen, I mean, uh, I don't want to name names, but we've seen countries that, uh, you know, bluntly are not adhering to any of these norms or so some of them. Yeah, let, let's go. We definitely want to get to that because I think that's the accountability issue that, that we want to get to. But before we get to that, just back on the, the report that came out, it did talk about capacity building, right? Well, which was good. But as you recall, the chair had this idea of, hey, the UN should be the, we should create a new structure at the UN. And that was one of his proposals, but that didn't really get right. a lot of support among like the US, Israel, Canada, a number of countries, even Russia didn't want it, uh, which was interesting, and, and Brazil. So India liked it, but most other people didn't. What role do you think the UN can play in this area? I mean, I, I do worry about it trying to be the, the platform because it just doesn't have the capacity, if you will, to do that. But I think that we've seen, and this is not something that only, only Israel says. I think that we've heard it quite a lot across the board that when it comes to capacity building, the most important channels would be, of course, bilateral. And many countries are already doing that. Israel is among them. We're doing a lot of bilateral work with countries across the, the globe. And, and the second would be regional organizations. That's like the given because they, they have the culture. They have the, uh, the more, sometimes much more capacities to do this work and to understand what the needs are and how to allocate. So doing that through these levels would be much better than now putting more burden on, on the secretariat, whether it's the UNODA or whatever would, would be built for that. The UN is, is a very, we know all the UN, UN is so bureaucratic and so political sometimes, and it's complicated and putting more on, on the UN wouldn't solve this issue. And it would just put more. Do you think, think Amandeep Gill, the new tech envoy is going to pick up some of this? I don't know. That's, we have to see, but it's it's very hard to see how you can do something on a global level. Yeah. Well, as you know, because Israel is part of it, the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise tries to be that global entity, but it doesn't try to do everything either, you know, because it, it, it can't. And that was nice to see in the report, at least language saying we should leverage existing efforts, which wasn't there before. It doesn't say what those efforts That's are because right. the Chinese didn't want to enlist any efforts, but at least it said leverage, which was good. Because it does, there's work done. Like GFC is doing a lot of work. There's others. And on a regional basis, I know some of the regional organizations are doing their share. So 
to build on that. And let's see this first flourishing and, and, and giving the UN uh, blessing. And, and then, I mean, because I, we really cannot see how the UN as a, as a body can contribute here. So one of the things that the US hasn't been able to do, and I'm gonna be a little critical of them, is we've had internal discussions about what do you need for accountability? And you need two things. You need agreement on some standards of attribution sufficient for political and diplomatic purposes. Not technical attribution, not the attribution you get in the court, but political attribution. And then you need some mechanism, it can be a very light mechanism, for coordination of effort among the like-minded nations. And having realized that about a year ago, uh, we've been a bit, and you could say, well, you know, Ukraine got in the way and ransomware got in the way. And, but what would you do to move this out? I mean, I agree with you. We're not gonna get global agreement. The best we the, I got a long lecture from our friend Karsten about how it was good that they hadn't lost any ground. It's like, Karsten, that is really the goal in these things, you know? Although it is good, <laughs> but still, that's not the goal. <laughs> what would you do to move things along? So, you think there's a market? This is a little bit off the main topic of, 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 of capacity building. You're going more into the, the realm of the first pillar, which is threats. Yeah. And then the second one, which is norms. So I, I don't want to mix these three uh, pillars. I think that attribution is, is a question by itself. Okay. And we don't necessarily see eye to eye with the U.S. on, on that. Uh, we have a different policy when it comes to attribution. It's not that we don't understand that the importance of it. It is important. There are a lot of problematic technical and political hurdles in, in the way to really base something that would be enough, not on the court, but on the, on the public courts, to create a, yeah. an, an attribution that would be strong enough politically uh, sustainable yeah, yeah sustainable and it, that would really make the difference so and then it, it, when it goes to the other like more i would say positive agenda of, of capacity building we, we believe that this should actually be the main work of these these four i, I can give you an example we, we've been very amazed to see small countries like fiji for instance mm-hmm. like a different one, a Caribbean one, that you see they're very allocated. They bring, they bring an agenda, that, and you wouldn't expect small yeah. island countries, yeah. uh, Jamaica, Jamaica with the other one. So when you, when you hear the representatives in the room, it's really amazing. It's really impressive. They come with policy. They come with thinking, uh, and they have a different perspective than us. And we're not, you know, we're a small country. And again, we're not an island in a way. We are, but we're a small country, but when you look at these countries that don't have all this technological capacity and they still, they do a lot of efforts on, on, on this, uh, it's nice. That's, a, that's sort of a debate point that having everybody strengthen their capacity doesn't really get you to implementation of norms. And it's only the imposition of consequences that will get you there. The imposition of consequences oh. is a little hard. I mean, people prefer to say accountability. So what would an accountability mechanism look like, either on so, a regional or like-minded basis? Yeah, so let, let's be clear, Amir. So, I mean, we're leaving the UN now. So uh, you're quite right. I think this is probably a topic that the UN's not, and Jim has said this too, that the UN's not going to be able to grapple with for lots of political and other reasons in the short term. But let's, 
And we can go back to the UN discussions in a little bit, but leaving the UN discussion. The only reason I go back to the UN is we should at some point talk about confidence building measures. Which... No, no. The reason I wanted to go back is to talk about the geopolitical stuff that was going on with Russia and others. Oh. That's, so I want to go to that. But Okay, we can go to that too. But yeah, so confidence the... building measures, great idea. Wrote it in 2010. <laughs> Not clear how we actually make them work. So well, we a lot are, of good part, effort at regional level. We are part, we are happy to be part of a, a small group of cross national, yep. cross regional group that is the Germans initiated and we joined and we're very happy to contribute there because we do believe that there. I mean, it, it's not as simple as emulating what happened during the nuclear era to the cyber domain. It's it's different. We're not talking about the same concepts. It's we we just maybe borrowing some of the vocabulary, but I'm not sure it has anything to do with it. But no, but I'll tell you, when I wrote the draft in 2013, I had the CFE, the Conventional Forces in Europe Agreement, open in front of me. Yeah, so I think we're, we're trying to use maybe concepts or vocabulary. And it doesn't work anymore. Oh. But it, it's different. It's much different. And when we talk about building trust and, and, and confidence, it's, it's mainly, I'll give you an example. We've uh, offered to do something that we've done within Israel. Like we've built, we call it a cybernet. It's like a, it's a closed server that all stakeholders can use to disseminate information and warnings and threats and, and, and any kind of information that should be useful in a, in a secure way. So maybe build something, I'm not sure we can do that globally, but maybe start on a regional basis. I know the Europeans, the European Union has something similar, but maybe to build something a little bit bigger than just the European Union, maybe the regional groups can, can help build something similar. And that's, at least you have a, a mechanism that you know that is controlled and you can, through that mechanism, try to um, avoid misunderstandings. So we're talking about the POC list, it's nice. But at the end of the day, you know, who is going to be updating this it's like something of the old age we're now in a, in a new data age we cannot you know go back to having lists that have to be updated <laughs> you have to build something much more uh, sophisticated. hey this is diplomacy we still like uh, quills and parchment paper yeah. but, in, but but you're right that was brought up as one of the proposals actually germany and others were proposing that within the context we, we support of the OEWG. It. yeah Good. But I'm not sure, you know, the, the minute you write this, you finish collecting yeah. all the data, it's updated. It's un, uh, I, I will tell you, I've been on the unfortunate end of several of those lists where uh, the G8 24-7 list and the G7 uh, 24-7 list, international watch and warning list, the uh, Meridian <laughs> conference list, and each of those, keeping them updated, right. it's almost impossible. And so you have to figure out a way not to make it personal contacts, but yeah, institutional contacts. It has to be technological. That's what we're yeah. trying to, to, to yeah. say here. It's still, you know, it, it's, it's a vision. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But if we look into this uh, as, as something that is feasible, we might have happen to, to have it sometime soon. So that's so, building trust on, on the really basic level. Again, there are other ideas that we're not so, you know, crazy about of, you know, all this. It helps when, when states publish their uh, national strategies and the more information they put there, it, it definitely makes it easier to understand what their posture is, what their thinking is, what their strategy is. I mean, you, you don't expect states to put their uh, sensitive information right. there. So at the end of the day, it stops somewhere. It, it's not... 
Well, you know, the chair, almost like a mantra, said at the beginning of a recession how the, the meetings themselves were a confidence-building measure. And to some extent, you know, as you said, there's a community, so. Let's, let's think that today we wouldn't have the open-ended. We'd have only the GGE, 24, 25 countries sitting together and, and discussing. We won't have this forum, and major things would happen. What I mean, the, the only alternative was to go to the General Assembly, yeah. or Security Council, I don't know. Here, at least we know that we have a venue that each country can come and every few months, you know, ventilate some of its uh, frustrations, some of its uh, policies, whatever. So it is a, me it is a measure of, of confidence building in a way. No, that's where the OEWG has been a success. And so right. to some extent, the Russians deserve a little credit for that. Right. They had ulterior motives, of course. Definitely. They still have. They yeah, amazing. <laughs> and now the issue is we've perhaps taken it to the limits of what it can achieve. What can you do outside of the OEWG and UN framework that contributes usefully to better security? That's where I think that your question, Jim, about accountability comes in, because, you know, I think the UN is incredibly useful to agree to norms. And now that you get everyone to agree, even though voluntary their political commitments. So now the question is, when folks violate them, because they do, what, what, what do you do? And, and that's not going to be the UN, at least not in the near future. So, so, so that's you know to modify Jim's question a little bit. So, you know, how how does Israel look at that? How does accountability from Israel's perspective look, which includes attribution, but also includes you know what consequences you might impose, other things you might think about? How can we, if we can at all, change the minds or or go after the, the bad guys, the bad states? That's definitely the question. And uh, it's very complicated because uh, it goes, it drills down to all the other conflicts. It's never, at least in our case, it's never just a cyber war. It's right. always cyber as part of a big campaign that has other true everywhere. It has yeah. kinetic, uh, it has everything. In, so cyber is part of it as well. In our case, it's very hard to say, okay, we'll, make sure that we can get accountability on that, but we will still have, so we have to deal with it with all the other threats at the same time. I think that among like-minded, it's easy. We, we, we know that we all agree on the same thing. Nobody's supposed to attack a hospital. Nobody's supposed to attack a factory that produces uh, vaccinations. That's a given. I mean, we don't have even to mention it. it. It goes without saying. The problem is that not all countries around the world adhere to this. Uh, and they do see some of those targets as legit. I always had trouble with that one because under the laws of armed conflict, it's it's ultimately a commander's decision as to whether there's a military utility in attacking the target, which they later have to justify. So there, there's a blanket assertion that you should not attack civilians for no reason. But if there's a reason you're allowed to attack them. But Jim, that's only if you're above that threshold, right? So we're not talking, we're talking about if the norms are supposed to be in peacetime, right. then doesn't that make it more absolute? The dilemma there, and this is sort of the story of Israel to some extent, is that, you know, peacetime is a What's 19th peacetime? century concept. <laughs> yeah. right? in, our, in our case, it's very, very... Uh... Yeah. So <laughs> we're not, we're not going to have the Battle of Waterloo where you have the, the Allies on one side and the French on the other with bands and flags. It's going to be much more amorphous. So that's a difficult problem. It's probably too hard for the UN to wrestle with. We are, we are dealing a lot with non-state actors. What can you do? How can yeah. you ask 
if, if this non-state actor is not accountable when it comes to terrorism and he, he attacks without even thinking, sends rockets to uh, civilian centers, why would he um, be, be uh, I mean, looking into this when he's using cyber? Yeah. What would point. a confidence building measure be for Israel? What would make you feel more confident? I think that here on this, we come uh, with our experience and suggestions in order to assist, I think, the on the global level to, to maybe to create, I don't think that nothing if, from, our, from our immediate threats, this is no confidence will be built there. We're not talking <laughs> about that on, 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 for our sake right now. But on a global level, it's important to have maybe a mechanism, doesn't matter if it's a list of POCs or, or, or a system that you can try to figure out things before they escalate, try to get information, try to share information, try to get answers to questions before they, things uh, get out of hand or when, when there's mis misunderstandings and misconceptions and so on. That's something that maybe can, can help get, get a better global environment. Of course, it's not going to solve all the problems when, when, a, when a country is reluctant or is determined to do something, it will do it, regardless of the CBM. You said something which resonated a lot with me, which uh, is it's not just a cyber thing. It's everything. You know, it's part of a larger conflict. It's part of a larger history. And I think a lot of countries still look at cyber as this bright, shiny object, this sort of separate thing. And if you're going to make progress, like when we made progress limited progress, at least with China, it was making it part of a larger, the whole of government relationship with China and not just the cyber thing. And within Israel, is that understood? I mean, are you, is the cyber parts of Israel's capabilities, either at the foreign ministry or other parts of uh, the government, are they integrated? Is this all thought of as like one larger strategic issue? Because that's been a challenge, even in the US, it's gotten better, but but is that happening? I think that recently, we since we've we had we have much more understanding and our part in the government in the interagency work that is done in Israel, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs part is to try to be bringing the international perspective into the discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have all the time kind of ongoing talks and discussions with our colleagues in the other sides of the government, National Security Council, or the other ministries that are in charge of defense and so on, and and try to bring the so they understand what is the what is the global perspective, and of course at the end of the day there are decisions that decision makers have to take on what kind of measures, what kind of defense are you are you implementing and so on. I think that it's it's getting much. I mean, this kind of interagency discussions are getting much more better than before. Who has the lead in it? Is it the Prime Minister's office. So, or, since uh, the our national cyber directorate is is immediately uh, subordinate mm -hmm. to the to the Prime Minister, so they have uh, a very close. They don't need to go through a minister; they are directly under him, mm -hmm. so they can have a very close discussions with the Prime Minister. So it helps, like the other major defense yeah. establishments. So that's something that has helped a lot to build this kind of, uh, I would say, interagency work because they have a a very important part of the, of the government. And when it comes to all the international aspects, we are there, of course. One thing we always wrestled with when I worked for the UN was finding Middle Eastern countries that wanted to participate, particularly Gulf countries. So when you talk about regional organizations, do you see any hope in that area? I mean, you have the-, well, the I think the, it's a little bit early. Although we do see, I would say, 
smaller architectures like trilateral, maybe quadrilateral and others. I can say that on the bilateral level, we went quite far. Of course, if you compare it to what we had before with some of the Gulf states, and mm -hmm. um, the relations started even before we had the official relations. But since we 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 started the official, and we have embassies and, and ambassadors and and official relations, things are really booming. And so so maybe maybe we cannot talk about a Middle Eastern regional architecture, but maybe uh, on a smaller scale with few members of region, maybe not so far away. And I, th I thought there was like a small number, like UAE and a couple other countries, which Israel is, yeah, you know, well, uh, like as a group, a smaller group that you right. were doing some right. work with. Right. Yeah. No, so this good. is the group right now that is more, I would say, easier to, to deal with. Of course, uh, the Middle East is very complicated and it's tough. But maybe if we look, you know, baby steps and not think about the Middle East as a Europe now to have a European Union in the Middle East, but maybe on a smaller scale to have uh, like these small architecture, uh, trilateral and, and other kind of groupings that would be much easier. You're about to head to New York and I'll see you there a little bit uh, for the ad hoc cybercrime group. What's your assessment of where that is? And I think that this is the last, the, the third round. So it, it's been an interesting exercise. I mean, we, we came a little bit hesitant because we were, um, the last few years, we were working very hard on, on after Israel uh, signed the Budapest Accords, and to to prepare for that, we had to do uh, to go through a lot of legislation and and yeah. updates in our internal uh, laws and so on. And we've joined, and we were very happy with the way uh, the Budapest uh, was working. Our police was engaged. Our uh, Ministry of Justice was very engaged. Everybody was, uh, and suddenly came this idea. We were a little bit hesitant, but we said, okay, we're we're not against it in principle. We'll see how it unfolds, and we'll we'll see if it at the end we'll see that it contributes, and it, it the outcome is something that we can live with and and work with. Why not? But so this this is where we we are, and we we took it very seriously, and we we did the interagency again with mostly with the Ministry of Justice to to work out and come with our uh, ideas and, and perspectives to the different parts of the the Justice Convention and. Now it's the third round, basically going through all these uh, different chapters. At the end of the day, some sometimes soon we'll have to see a text because it's all about text. Because what yeah, yeah. happened until now, everybody raised like a wish list. This is what we want to see. This is what we don't <laughs> want to see. But it, if we want to have a convention, we have to start talking about text. Yeah. So I hope that the, sooner the, or later yeah. we'll have a text. So I'm <laughs> relating to. Who staffs it? Is it the third committee? Yeah. Because one of the, one of the strengths of the whole OEWGGGE process is uh, disarmament affairs under Nakamitsu and her predecessors have done a great job. Yeah. Staff. Here it's ODA. It's a UNODC. It's the it's yeah. basically oh, based in Geneva. That's where good. the expertise for the the crime issues are. Uh -huh. so that's why we we were the ones together with the U.S. and many others saying we should have all this process happening in Vienna. Because yeah. that's where they they did the UNTOK and UNCAC and all these. Uh, conventions that deal with with the crime the russians were wanted it to be in new york so we found a middle ground but but most of the expertise is not in new york yeah sure so, so that that kind of raises a larger which has affected both processes i think and, and really beyond that which is you know given the the war in ukraine and the geopolitical issues 
particularly with Russia. As you know, a lot of delegations have raised this in the, the hearings that Russia was very vocal, that they were upset that some of their people didn't get visas this last time. There was so, nevertheless, you know, there was there was some thoughts that the Russians would object to any text because of that, and they ended up with a consensus. So, so what's your sense of that whole, how that whole, you know, two issues, how that geopolitical crisis is affecting these negotiations, but then separately, you know, how is cyber and Ukraine and what Russia is doing, how is that affecting the larger picture of how folks are, are viewing cybersecurity and, and some of these larger cyber issues? I think that I'll start from the second part. Of it. I mean, the fact that we managed to have a consensual report is something encouraging that although we had all these geostrategic, geopolitical and geostrategic uh, conflicts and all the, what happened in the, the first two rounds of negotiations in the open-ended, we managed to, at the end of the day, to come to a consensus. So that's, I would take it as something encouraging. We cannot avoid that while we speak and we sit in, in New York or Vienna, wherever it is, uh, there's things happening on the ground. This, especially Ukraine and European countries are facing it and, and they have to deal with the consequences. But that's, I think, that's the UN in general. It's always been a little bit disconnected mm. in many ways. Some say that when you when you walk into that building on the First Avenue, you, you're you moving to a, a different dimension. <laughs> it doesn't really reflect what's going on in the other parts of the world. So that's probably, maybe it's an advantage, maybe it's a disadvantage of the UN, because otherwise we won't have this opportunity to sit all of us together in the same hall, 193 member states, and, and talk. But I think we would like to see, as many others, a reflection of some of those uh, new threats that emerge and, and some of those questions that came up uh, reflected in the report. But we understood that politically it's not going to happen. Nobody, nobody would agree to that. So last time we talked to Nakamitsu... As much as Michelle was, was trying to push it, we know that it's not no Russian would agree to be named in the report. <laughs> the last time we talked to Nakamitsu, which was before the invasion, she was a little gloomy on the uh, international peace and disarmament prospects. What do you think? Is that still... You know, this came up when we were talking about the Cold War models that did inform the 2013 and 2015 drafts. Those models no longer work. So right. what would you do moving forward? It's definitely a different game we see. It's not the bipolar world anymore. There are many uh, moving parts, and there are few polars, and it makes the game much more complicated. But that's what we're, I mean, that's what we're paid to do, diplomats, to try to find, you know, ways to still do something positive. And while protecting our national interests, of course, and, and making sure that we are in the same place we, we would like to be and not carried to other places. I used to deal with disarmament and, and arms control issues a few years ago. I'm now in, in cyber, so I prefer to stick into cyber. I know that it's not necessarily related, although for many years there was uh, influence coming from the first committee, political rivalry into the cyber debates. Mm -hmm. I think that today the cyber has already gained its own independence in the way that the discussions are cyber. There's enough trouble in cyber, problems in cyber, <laughs> you don't need to input anything from other discussions. How does it compare to your other diplomatic assignments? How would you rate this? It's, I mean, it's the same it's, skill set? Or... Because the, 
the UN mechanism is the same UN mechanism. It's the same kind of uh, rules and, and the, the same uh, working uh, methods that you do when you deal with uh, other arms control issues or the first committee issues or even other committees. Mm-hmm. But in cyber, it's, it's, it's different. It's very different, I think, because it's a real multi-stakeholder uh, issue. Very different from any other, uh, I would say, discussion on the first committee. Because maybe the ones that really hold the power over this resource, the internet, is not states. Or not the only states. So it, it makes the discussion very, very interesting. And it's a real multi-stakeholder uh, process. You cannot just sit them aside and, and ask them to come and give their perspective every few weeks. They are the ones controlling the infrastructure. They are the ones changing the ways that the infrastructure works. As you know, one of the unfortunate things is that over 30 organizations were blocked from participating. Most, almost every Western organization, I think, was blocked by Russia. Some Russian organizations were blocked by Ukraine. So hopefully, as you say, we'll find a better way to engage with the, those folks uh, you know, that's that's where politics makes it difficult for this to happen. But unfortunately, I mean, many of those organizations still managed to be there because countries brought them on their delegation or others. They found other ways to do it. So it wasn't a total loss, but it was unfortunate, I think. What, what do you think of the mechanism of doing these things as side meetings, which has an unfortunate precedent if you look at the circus? But is it the only <laughs> mechanism? Do you think there's any hope that we'll ever see people... Being more amenable. We were definitely for as much as possible to engage with the multi-stakeholder community. That's our perspective that we were there from the beginning, supporting the modality that was the most liberal one. That's that's our policy. But we know that the game there is very complicated. And that's part of the, the price you have to pay when you're in a consensual process. What does Israel do like itself in terms of you and others consulting with other stakeholders, like before you go to New York, Israel well, State. I think that, first of all, our ecosystem is, is very, very unique, I think, in many, yeah. many ways. Because there are clear, of course, there are clear lines between what is private sector, what is government, what is academy. But since, especially in cyber, our ecosystem starts, we can say, as as the military in Israel is, is you know, recruiting every 18, almost every 18-year-old kid into the into a compulsory service, obligatory yeah. service, and they can choose the best and the brightest, and they get the best and the brightest. Yeah. And th- those people go into the technological units uh, of the military, and after three, four, five years, they're out. And yeah. that's where the backbone of our uh, industry comes from, those mm-hmm. people that got a lot of experience, a lot of technical expertise, and they go out to the market, go out to the academy, but they continue to do, some of them continue to do reserves. Yeah. So we see each other. It doesn't matter if you work in the university as a professor or you work in one of the startups, you can come up a month every year to do reserves together with your colleagues and you, you sit together. So the ecosystem is really close and they, they can share a lot of, so a lot of these things are, are not official but they happen the information sharing this know-how sharing people that know each other it helps a lot to build a very strong ecosystem it's funny that i heard and tell me if this is right 
from one of my colleagues in Israel that it used to be that the compulsory service, the top choice was people going and doing the kind of like combat stuff that people really want to do that. But now the top choice is cyber and it's so much the top choice. They can't accommodate all the people who want to do it. Is that it's true, but it's not exactly the case. I mean, it's still, there's still a lot of enthusiasm about going into infantry or going into the battalion, like the special units and so that it's still, still there. But definitely for many, many young adults in Israel, they see uh, this as an opportunity because they know that once they are uh, out of the army, they finish their service, they can be immediately accepted into the startup world or into the academic world and and make a lot of money. It's really a very uh, profitable uh, business. They pay today in the startups and in big companies is very, very lucrative. So... We saw the same thing at the Naval Academy, where cyber became the third most popular. (laughs) Today, we have, in all our major universities, today we have cyber departments, some of them really big ones in most colleges. So it's really became uh, something which is uh, all across, especially uh, in in the periphery. There are government programs to help. Because there was a cry from the periphery, not only the geographic periphery, also the social periphery, that not all kids have the same like opportunity. So they try to put some government funding into teaching STEM, teaching technological subjects in, in high school. So there will, the more, more kids will have the capability to be accepted to these units because they are, as I said, they, they really choose, they, they cherry pick all the, only the ones that are extremely uh, talented. So they want to have more kids with these capabilities. So they, they put a lot of emphasis in teaching computer science and mathematics and so on and physics. So it helps a lot create more and more talented uh, kids. So we see a, a, more, a little bit more equal uh, opportunities. Since you brought up industry, one of the topics here has been uh, whether or not we need some sort of international agreement, maybe in the Wassenaar arrangement, maybe somewhere else on uh, surveillance technology. And of course, the, there's strong views on uh, NSO group, which is something that I don't think came up on the president's visit, although it came up in some of the preparatory meetings. What would the approach be to an agreement on surveillance technology? And Lucky noting- thing, yeah, I don't noting, agree with, uh, with, uh, with all the export control. Uh, we have a, yeah. se- a separate department. That's the job <laughs> that's a good answer. control. So I'm I'm dealing with all the multilateral and bilateral cyber security issues. So I'm I'm lucky not to be uh, dealing with that at all. So <laughs> good. I'm, I'm tempted. I'll ask you maybe an easier question, which is since our time is running out. I, uh, so you've been in the job now about what a year and a half? Is that right? Yeah, almost two years. Yeah. Almost two years, and you know Israel's had a strong tradition of this. What would you say are your goals? What do you want to achieve before you you leave this post and go on to whatever? And if you want to leave this post, maybe you'll stay here for the rest of your life, which is great. Uh, but what but what do you what do you want to do? What do you think? There's lots of challenges out there. Things are maybe getting worse, not better. What do you think you you want to achieve from Israel's perspective? One of the things that we've been trying to do, my predecessor as well, is to try to incorporate the capacity building in cyber with the traditional work we've been doing in Mashab. Mashab is the Israeli uh, USAID. Okay. The equivalent of USAID. And mm-hmm. this was a branch of the ministry that was built in the 50s when Israel was just a very, very young and very small and weak country. But we, we, we knew that we could share 
some of the know-how and some of the, the expertise that we had. At that time, it was mainly in agriculture. But since we've been working a lot today, and it's a lot to do with medicine, to do with economic uh, opportunities and so on. So try to combine the way the work that has been done with, with cyber capacity building in many countries together with this with this Israel uh, US Israel aid agency because I think that we can do a lot and, and that is exactly the work I think that should be done to support those maybe maybe countries in Africa and in, in, in Latin America and in, in Central Asia that are, are really struggling with not having the basic capacities because today it's all about manpower it's, right. it's how to train how to do all the simulators all and Israel is really really developed in that. We have a lot of uh, companies dealing with building simulators, training, training the trainers and so on, building the human capacity, which is something that is, I think the, the world is lacking thousands and thousands of, of good cyber defenders in all levels, all tiers. So that's where I think we should go. We're, we were trying to do it. Maybe we'll be able to do it in, in the next and that just as uh, you know, a comment, we've been pushing, as you know, the GFC has been pushing for this for a while, but also it was good to see in the report, uh, the uh, OEWG report, a recognition of the link between cyber and the UN development goals, because they hadn't done that before. So that was a positive thing in the report too, because I think these communities should come together. So I think yeah, you're- our, our national cyber director there, they are working closely with the World Bank Yep. And so with the American Development Bank. USID, have, yeah. Yeah. So they have these schemes to try to tie this developing money into some of the capacities that building those methodologies, using the methodologies we've been working with, with Israeli technology and know-how. I think this is like what we've done in the 50s with agriculture and some of those new developing and, and new emerging countries, in, mainly in Africa and Asia. Maybe we can do it today. Well, maybe a last question for me and a dangerous question for a diplomat, but <laughs> we're in the process, we in the United States are in the process of developing national strategies. In fact, we probably have at least three. Uh, <laughs> the overarching one though includes workforce and it's being done by Chris Inglis at the National Cyber Directorate. What advice would you give? What would you want to see in an American national strategy on cybersecurity. Whoa, that's a really a landmine. Uh, <laughs> it is a landmine, so you can talk. That's why I asked it. I don't the think end. we're in the, the position ones, to give America any, so we can clip any suggestions. <laughs> really, I'm not in a position to, to, to tell America <laughs> what to do. I can tell you that we are we're looking into strengthening our very strong relations with the DHS and CISA and, and other branches especially in R&D. I think there's a lot we, should, we can still do together. The Israeli uh, innovation with, with the U.S., mm -hmm. very strong market, and then to build better, better solutions. CISA tells me they'll have their own strategy out in September, mid-September. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, there may be too, too many strategies. We'll see where this comes out for the U.S. Yeah, so. there's a DOD strategy as well. And the theory, they all combine into the national cyber strategy. Right. Well, and the national cyber strategy may not be dealing enough with international stuff, so who knows? And it's supposed going. to fit into the larger <laughs> national security strategy, so we, so have, we'll see. we have a very convoluted process, but uh, it's something to watch. Okay, so here, here's my, and this will not be as controversial, I don't think, but 
Jim and I oh, we, have, and you, we have to tease him. <laughs> yeah, J- Jim and I and uh and and all of us have been arguing for cyber to be a mainstream priority for as long as we've been doing this for like 20 what 30 whatever years. And only recently has it really become that way because of ransomware, because of Ukraine, because of other things. But my fear is that given given our past experience that this will be an important issue now, then the next bright, shiny object will come along and governments and others will will you know not have that sustained approach. Israel seems to be a little different because you're under cyber attack all the time, although we are too. But do you think that we finally reached the the area where this is going to stay a priority or do you think it's going to slip back into the 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 water like the Loch Ness monster or something that it will disappear? I think, I think there's no way back. I think that it, the more we and the COVID crisis maybe just accelerated the development, but it, it would happen anyway. The fact that we're so interconnected, the fact that technology is really mastering our lives. It's just, you know, and, and the uh, threat vectors are huge and growing and becoming much more wider. I don't see a way back. This would remain a priority. There might be, you know, some uh, ways that it will move because technology is also evolving and developing and there, there's always new threats that come with AI now and, and quantum computing and others. There will be things that we don't even know how to name that will probably rise soon. So, but it, I don't think that it, there's a way back. Even, as I mentioned, uh, Jamaica and Fiji are, are yeah. concerned. So it's, and yeah. they have maybe much bigger fish to deal with because of global warming and, and food security and many, many issues. And they still focus also on cyber security, which is, is just proof that it is a global thing that it's not going to we'll have i think that we have job security for a few, <laughs> few more decades amir we covered a lot of ground maybe not always in depth but a huge <laughs> amount of terrain thank you very much for doing thank this thank you for the opportunity